Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yoga with Nish. May these words serve you. Open the floor now for any questions and debate and objections, and please feel free to unmute and share about anything. And I'll be here all night as you need, so we'll just open it. Yes. Isn't there a story? So I forget the sage you're using for the last one with the molten thing, but doesn't Shiva have a almost like a very similar story where he drinks from a poisoned well or something like that? Absolutely. You know, it's funny that Shiva, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't like completely blanking on something because I was like, I feel like I've heard this exact, exact take. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Shankara is actually an incarnation of Shiva, legendarily. Ah, there we go. Yes. And you will find the story in Ram Das's Be Here Now as well, when Maharaji takes all the acid. You know, Ram Das is looking to figure out what acid is. So he gives Maharaji or Neem Karoli Baba a palm full of white lightning capsules. And it's like really high dose. He goes, acha! He eats it. Nothing happens. You see this all the time in India. People are just untouched by drugs or whatever. So yeah, you're right, Austin. It's a bit of an archetypical story, you know? (laughs) Shiva, by the way, or Siva or Shiva was before a drunkard and a gambler. So there are some stories where he was a drunkard and he just like waste all his money. Oh, thank you, Lyric. Thank you so, so much. Good night to you and sleep beautifully. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Yes. And I, I will read these, uh, this discussion, but while I do, um, does anybody have a question they'd like to vocalize or whatever? Can share? Yes, Casey. I have a question. So at the end of your, I have a lot of thoughts, but my main question is, um, so when you are enlightened, like, are you practicing? Because there is sexual things that go on in some tantra. Like I went in a hole, like a deep hole of like the Tibetan monks and like, um, there was like some sexual practices they did for enlightenment and insight, right? I don't know if I'm just like confusing myself more by looking into this stuff. So I'm just like wondering like what your input on that is. Yes, yes. Uh, Casey, I'll have to tell you that a lot of this stuff is um, Western misunderstanding. Oh, I hear myself. Casey, I'll have to tell you that a lot of this stuff is yeah no um no okay so i have to clarify something in the tantric buddhist schools uh, have you seen the yabyum buddha you know the image of the buddha and there's like a woman in his lap yeah or there's also the woman meditating and there's like a man in her lap it's called the yabyum buddha and yes there is a tantric school uh, of Buddhism, Nagarjuna belongs to that school, and I love that school. Remember that most of the Tantric Buddhists were celibate. The Buddhist yeah. 
were more likely to be celibate than the Shaiva Tantrikas. Shaiva Tantrikas or Hindu Tantrikas uh, were more likely to be householders living in cities like Nalanda and Takshila. The Buddhists were more likely to be in monasteries in the Himalayas. So they very unlikely that they have actual sexual practices, but it is possible that there are certain sects among them. And we generally call this left-hand Tantra or left-hand path Tantra. And there are definitely some sects, uh, sex, uh, pardon the pun, but there are definitely some sects of tantra in buddhism and hinduism that did you know we have some records of them hosting these orgiastic rites in graveyards um the argori indians are rumored to be you know having sex all night in graveyards as a part of a meditation and there are some practices where you sit next to someone and you have sex with them sideways until you arrive at that point right as you're about to come but you don't actually come yeah, like I was reading like they would like they thought the female fluid like they would like do some sort of meditation, like suck it up, like reverse it. And it was like really weird. That's key, Casey. That's key. Have you seen the tarot card, The Hanged Man? Yeah. Or the headstand, the Shir Shasana and Yoga. It's all about redirecting the flow of seminal fluid. So mm-hmm. not letting the sexuality go out into the world. Where they involve themselves with sex, it was always to flip it, move it up the spine and overcome mm-hmm. it. You know? Yeah. yeah. So my main thought is like about how like sex like changes the way we like think about things and see people like even becoming a massage therapist like I had to completely overcome like objectifying other people or even associating touch with sex which is like you know being touched is not inherently sexual when you're touched by your mother you know so that's like kind of something I feel like is really important just to like change the way we we see people you know not overly sexualize things you know so thank you for the talk niche (laughs) Casey what a beautiful point Ram Das has a lot of this kind of languaging around the planes through which we see so Mm -hmm. if we're in like the root chakra plane and we're seeing in terms of that red light we look at others only in terms of what they can do for us on a security and safety level can this person protect me and we don't want to engage with anything about them except for that frequency and so it's not an actual relationship uh we don't feel fulfilled and then a lot of us see each other in terms of that orange light second chakra of what sexual gratification can i get from that person and even that's not fulfilling. And everyone's had that one night stand where they're like, oh, that was, uh, you know, <laughs> I need a shower. <laughs> and then we see each other in terms of that, uh, 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 what is it, yellow light, where we look at each other and we're like, what can you do for my ego? Will you share my Instagram post because you have 12, th- you know, like, what can you do in terms of strengthening my sense of self? As long as we see each other in those terms, we will always have dissatisfying relationships. They don't actually see you. I'm not actually like, if I'm, if Casey's massaging anybody, you're like massaging their soul. Mm. You know, like you see them and you're touching them. You know, your touch is not tarnished by any of these, you know, uh, prisms. For some people it is, you know, and it's about like reprogramming, I guess. Yes. Associating like the deeper meaning of being touched. Yes. I guess to, you know, not sex, you know, there's so much more to it. Mm. Yeah. 
And Vivekananda would say rather than reprogramming, he would say dehypnotizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Dispelling. <laughs> Dispelling. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, I always enjoy having you, Casey, because you always have such deep and insightful things to say. And I'm probably not alone in saying thank you so much for speaking and sharing. Of course. Yeah, I try to get in because it's late here. Try to get in before I have to go to bed. (laughs) Thank you, Nish. Thank you, everyone. (laughs) I hope this served you, Casey. Thank you for sharing this moment with us. Of course. Yeah, always does. I wanted to share something that I noticed with like, I guess like a Western spirituality, because I feel like something I've noticed is that like when you like go to like, like, I guess more Eastern religions and stuff like that, they don't really demonize sex, but they try to like, they like, like you said, they give more of an explanation But then, like, when you look at, like, Western spirituality, it's like, oh, but if you have sex, like, with this person and that person, you are bonded with them for life and you will never get rid of them. I'm just telling you that now. So you should just never have sex again. And, like, that, I feel like that demonizes sex and, like, makes it scary for a lot of people. And then you scare them away from it. But, like, then, like, instead of just, like, understanding or experiencing why maybe constant sex gratification isn't for you because I feel like a lot of people have gone through that stage where they've either like slept with a lot of people or like whatever it has whatever it is where they just realize that like this is not it like at all yes and I feel like western spirituality kind of like doesn't it's just like tries to scare you away from it kind of like how a lot of western religions do in a way Yes. That was just a thought I had that I wanted to share because I like the way that you explained it a lot. Oh, it was a beautiful share, Christina. I think Mara asked a little earlier about capitalism versus like, is capitalism anti-spirituality? A little mm-hmm. earlier. Oh, by the way, um, the chats went really fast and I didn't have a chance to really like read all of them. So if you put a question in the chat, I really, I invite you to like, voice it so I can because you know I don't want to read the chat while I'm looking at you I want to like look at you (laughs) but thank you for putting it in the chat it just went by so fast but it, it Christina you're right it does kind of talk to what Mara was saying about what is it about western religion because it's not like okay the eastern spirituality is better than western spirituality I mean there's no such real dichotomy between east and west um because there are a lot of like you know Western mystical traditions like Christian mysticism or etc. that have these very liberal views as well. Right. Yeah. I think we could summarize Eastern spirituality, if ever there's such a thing, with these five words. Um, it's not a big deal, maybe. Yeah. Nothing is. Yeah. Nothing's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just take things less seriously, maybe. And the question is, what did it? Is it capitalism? Because I, you know, um, Harish Johari argues in his book, Snakes and Arrows, the opening to his book, Snakes and Arrows, he says, there are certain 
environmental factors that have caused different cultures to focus on different parts of civilization. So in India, things were warmer and rice more plentiful, so we didn't have to worry about survival so much. So our philosophies are less practical and more idealistic. They are, I don't want to say less practical, but more concerned with transcendental issues than material issues. Part of the reason why our toilets don't work and social empowerment is not really all that good in India. But our spirituality is five stars on Yelp. Whereas in the West, there's a lot of luxury, but there's not a lot of meaning in life. So clearly both of us have perfected something. Both are necessary, and so we must come together. The West must teach us how to create electricity grids that work, and we must teach them how to not be so damn miserable on Christmas night. You know? Emerging right now. Yeah. What is the joke? In the West, uh, everything works. The lights work, the trains work, the hearts are broken. In the East... Hearts are happy. Everything else wor- uh, doesn't work. <laughs> uh, Maharaji's wife used to say that. <laughs> okay, I'll take Sean and then Claire. Sean had his hand up for a while. Yes, Sean. So I have something to kind of add. Um, I don't want to say your name wrong, so I'm just going to ask you how to pronounce it. Uh, is it... Who, 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 who's talking before? Is it Christina? Is that how you say it? It is oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so no problem. Um, so how you said that like people in the West love to talk about how like oh if you have sex you're connected with this person and forever and da 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 right and I I kind of see it that way um but less in a like you should be scared of it type of way because how I see it is you've done what you've done. So why does it matter? But you must learn from those things, which is what Nish was kind of um, talking about before about how, like um, when in the matrix, when he asked the Oracle, like why, why now it's to learn from everything in the past, you know what I mean? So it's not necessarily like, like how other people portray it, I guess is to like put fear into people, but, the point that what was the point that I was trying to get at was that um oh god I lost my train of thought um yeah I don't know now I'm lost don't worry um, we'll come back to you whenever you you are um, right. yeah yeah no but, worries there was a second part that I wanted to get after that. So maybe I'll backtrack um, was that when you, I, I do believe in like the, the theory of like soulmates or connected bodies and everything. Cause I, I, I believe that all consciousness is one net of consciousness, but at the same time that two physical bodies or two, two consciousnesses can be truly connected in one way, shape or form, you know what I mean? Um, and, and more in connection than someone else, you know what I mean? And that connection can be built or whatever it is in a past life or however it may become upon. But if there are to be a romantic or a sexual partner, I believe that like, I, I, I believe that in sexual acts, it shouldn't be to receive pleasure to, do any of that but if it is in a way to i guess enhance a connection type of way to 
I I don't really know how to word it, but you you get the kind of point that I'm trying to make. It's not it's not for sexual pleasure. It's not for that I want to bust. It's for the the pure connection of it. You know what I mean? It's it's a connective action. You know what I mean? And it's not for the self. It's for I guess like a each other type of thing. So. Yeah. Juan, you're coming on to something very beautiful and powerful because in the bhakti yoga tradition, there is a practice and it's called um, seeding intensity. Uh, I don't know how to translate it, but um, basically whenever you experience a powerful emotion, say you're listening to beautiful music or something moves you, in that moment, think of your chosen ideal or ishta deva or your god your personal God. So if it's Jesus, if it's Yahweh, it's Krishna, whatever it is, in that moment of intensity, if you think of that ideal, it puts it somewhere deep in you. So there's kind of a deepening of intimacy with that being following on the heels of intense emotional experience. So naturally, when there's a strong sexual experience, it's energetic, you know, it's powerful. You're right. It's not done with the intention for getting off it's done with a very different intention. So I, I think you would call that uh, consecration, you know, like consecrated food, consecrated sex, consecrated music. And someone actually mentioned a bit ago that the Bhagavad Gita says, this is how you do it. You know, the Bhagavad Gita says, do what you would do, you know, enter romantic relationships, make love, do what you would do, but do not be attached to the fruits of the action surrender those fruits to me, me being the higher ideal. So if you're enjoying something and you're able to enjoy it, not for yourself, but on behalf of something greater, then that's a yogic action. Hmm. Powerful, Sean. Thank you for that. No problem. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, Claire, and then I'll take Ryan and then Jana and then Amitaj. Yes, Claire. Yes, thank you. I just wanted to participate in this discussion that we're having about capitalism. And I just wanted to say like that, like specifically Western religion, like Christianity became the tool of, of capitalism. So it was adapted in order to exploit all these places and keep them in line with the dominant political mode of thinking. And we should never let power and pol politics be our lens on spirituality. So that's what happened in a, in a nutshell to uh to christianity it was used as a, as a tool of oppression of colonialism and so it was adapted to in order to um, um achieve those goals and then there i also wanted to add that there apart from being like spiritual texts there are a lot of practical things that happen in western religions with with sex with sex and with marriage like stis were like a rampant problem and like there are real health repercussions to having a child. So sometimes we take, we try and take everything to, you know, not everything is, um, yeah. Some of, some, some, some of the things that exist in religion exist as practical ways to live your life and as practical tools. They're not, yeah, that's it. That's all. Claire is like our satsang big sister. Claire is always so helpful. Thank you so much for that. I see Christina, I think speaking for everyone when she says you put that so well. No, it's true. Harish Johari in the opening to Snakes and Arrows, his book, he says, yeah, in the West, you know, there are practical concerns like it's the winter. 
So naturally, um, you have to use religion, which is the most powerful way of socially organizing a city to do these practical things like SDIs, birth controls. Exactly. So now the work that we do is to extricate the esoteric dimension or the actual mysticism of spirituality from its exoteric state control program. You know, <laughs> this is what is it? A state religion dehypnotizing workshop. It's shamanism initiation workshop. And this workshop says, do not ask each other what religions you belong to. You know, <laughs> you belong to none. You are your own person. You see with your own lens. <laughs> okay. And then I was going to say, Ryan, yes, you had your hand up next. Yes. Okay. Hi. Hi, everyone. Thanks for the talk tonight, Nish. I, I was. You know, the idea of celibacy or continence, it's what a struggle that is, right? Um, and I know you've you've mentioned to the group before when you were discussing the Yamas I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. Um that like we don't we don't have people take vows anymore, like for very good reason that like no one would be able to keep them. <laughs> um and as I was listening to your talk tonight, it, it seemed like there was kind of like two two reasons for this the practice of abstaining and like one was the idea of like realizing a non-dual nature and the other one was more i don't know what the right right, right word for it is but like the idea of like not spilling our energy and like all that sort of stuff. And that seems like a little bit unrelated to the non-dualist, like realizing the non-dualistic part of it. Maybe I'm getting that wrong. Um, so I guess really what my question would be is if the Yamas were written today, if there was going to be a vow today that a person should take or would take, like, would it be a hundred percent? Would it be, I don't know abstain as much as you can like what like what practically would be the answer to this question austin gives you a yama he says get off your phone <laughs> no honestly what a great idea <laughs> there is actually maharaji says <laughs> the two yamas today love everyone feed everyone those are the only two yamas love everyone don't tolerate them don't respect them god forbid love them you know the kind of love that Jesus has for the Roman centurion who's nailing his wrist into the wood. Forgive him, Father, he knows not what he does. That kind of love. So if you can do that, love everyone. You don't have to worry about any other maxim. Don't steal, brahmacharya, like all of that is nonsense compared to the power of love everyone. And naturally, as a byproduct of love everyone, it's serve everyone. Fuck boundaries. That's what modern yoga would say. Stop setting boundaries with your time and energy. You know, it's just like give everything. Give up, like Jesus says, take your shirt, give the, take the coat, give the shirt. They come to rob your house, pull out your wallet, give a five. Be like, maybe that can help too. I don't know. That's radical spirituality. It's just like give, give, give. So maybe those are the two yamas, the new ones. But I will say this to your point, Ryan, because you make a really good point about non-duality and the other like schools. Because Ryan is, you know, Ryan's point is very interesting. Non-duality doesn't really have a practice insofar as it's premised on having one insight. This is not an insight of intellect or knowledge. As much as you say to yourself, I am Brahman, I am not the mind, and I am not the body, all it takes is one pinch, and you're like, ow, 
what happened to your non-duality? It's gone, right? So it, it, remember I told you the story in the monasteries, the people will try to get surgeries without anesthetics because they're cocky. They're monks. They're like, I am Brahman. And then, ow! <laughs> <laughs> so um, this insight is not I have the concept I am Brahman it's deeper it's a very deep insight that is psycho-spiritual it's the very cells of your body know this then you truly won't blink because my ancestors strode naked in the Himalayas you know sometimes I have to remind myself that when my heat is out and I'm bathing in the cold water in January I'm like and then I have to remember that my ancestors <laughs> with your matted hair you know, half-closed eyes walking around completely naked, unaware. So it's like, that's the level of insight. But here's the fine print of non-duality. Yes, it doesn't take any work. It takes one insight. But to get that insight, it takes a lot of work. <laughs> that's the catch-22. So is it catch-22 or catch-21? Catch-22, right? Anyway, two, two, yes. So that's the joke. Now, Hatha Yoga, the practice I gave you, all these practices are instrumental. They are progressive spirituality. Non-duality is not progressive because it says once you get it, you get it. And you don't need any practice to get it. But sometimes to get it, you need practice. So those practices are interested in energy conservation. So if you go to any yoga teacher training, they get uncomfortable when they talk about brahmacharya because this is deeply unsettling to the Western mind. Continence and celibacy is like, I will do everything else but that, please. Do not castrate me. It's my one, the one thing that my culture has told me I, I should live for. You know, it's why people build Apple and businesses. You know, people create whole empires just so they can get laid, right? So, so that's why if you go to any yoga teacher training program, they will probably translate brahmacharya to good energy habits, conserving your energy. In a way, Austin is right, getting off your phone, you know, like not letting people suck your energy. But to the truest sense of the word, it's every time you orgasm, it's in French, le petit mot. And wait, look, even the Western magicians, you know, like Western ceremonial magicians, like in the book, um, Abramelin the Mage, you know, the Jewish mystic Abramelin, uh, Austin knows. Yeah, in that book, Abramelin says you have to be abstinent for at least 42 days before you can even deign to summon the goetic uh, demons, you know, evocation. So even in Western mystery schools, there is a harsh injunction against spilling the seed. So yes, Ryan, there is a certain level of protect the energy. Why? So that you can draw that energy up into a more rarefied frequency, and then you will have your non-dual insight. You know? How is that, Ryan? It, I mean, I can, you know, it makes perfect sense. How can I argue? How can I argue with it? Because... It's just, it, it, you're right. It just goes, it just cuts against everything that we, we've ever like learned culturally where like, you know, a, a speaking, you know, speaking as a man, like, like that is like the highest, like that's the highest level of achievement, you know, sexual achievement. Like, but clearly that's not it. Like <laughs> that's just more chocolate cake. Oh, Jess. Um, yeah. Sorry. Go on. Anyway, that's it. That, that was a perfect explanation for me. And it's one that I'm sure I'm going to continue to struggle with, but, um, but at least I'm aware of the struggle. <laughs> and uh, you know what? 
to the point of struggling, before I go to Jana and Travis, I have to point out what Jess said because it's really powerful. And I do just definitely want to address your uh, divine dispassion, numbness, the relationship to like suicidal ideation and that stuff. Like that needs to be addressed and we will. Uh, but Jess is saying something really powerful. Sometimes you know what you ought to do. You know your ideal. You just don't want to do it. And okay, I have to tell you, in the Bhagavad Gita, people always ask, you know, why didn't Krishna teach, you know, the bad guys? Why did Krishna go and teach Arjuna, like the good guy? Wouldn't the war have been averted if Krishna went and taught Duryodhana? And in fact, he did. Krishna first went to Duryodhana and said, Duryodhana, don't do this. What you're doing is immoral and it will bring suffering for all. And Duryodhana said, I know what you're saying is true. I know that what I'm doing is not right. The problem is, I feel like doing it. I don't feel like doing what's right. Isn't that crazy? Duryodhana is not pleading ignorance. He is, after all, an Indian prince, you know? And Indian princes all throughout their childhood are schooled by skinny old men in beards as to what, <laughs> you know? So he knows. He just doesn't feel like it. So Jess is pointing out something. And so, Ryan, what I would say is, in yoga, we say, don't quit porn. Don't quit masturbation. Don't stop chasing tail. Just practice asana, pranayama, and meditation. And then, porn, meditation, tail will quit you. You know, so you don't have to struggle against anything. The only struggle is to get on your mat. Every day, just get on your mat. Practice your asana an hour and a half every day. Get your pranayama in about three months into your asana practice. Meditate like a beast, you know, perfect your technique. And then slowly, slowly, they fall away. Should you stumble along the path, don't see it as stumbling, you know? So like, say there's a caving in to the chocolate cake. Be like, ha, huh. you know, this is when you practice your non-duality. You'd be like, ha, huh, interesting. The drunken monkey Nish opens the fridge yet again today, reaching out for a snack. Does he think this bit of cheese is going to solve his existential despair? Let's see. And then let's watch Nish take the cheese. Ah, he's enjoying it now. Ah, now let's watch him realize it wasn't enough. What will he take next? Ah, pickle. You know, you just watch your orality. You watch, and you watch it with laughter, because after all, why be mad at Ryan when you are not Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good, good, good. I have a question about that oh. real quick. Okay, real quick, because I want to take Jana and Travis. They had their hands up early, but... It's okay. No, then I, I can wait. I can wait. Okay, I'll come to you. I just want to honor that uh, Jana had her hand up. So, yes, please, Jana. Oh, okay. So, uh, good night to everyone. <laughs> Taking uh, what was you know uh, mentioned before about capitalism and the relationship between sexuality and capitalism in, in the West, I think it's deeply liberating to be revisiting all these concepts because while you were talking, I was thinking about my my own life and my own journey. And last year, I had um, some issues with sexuality and you know some some stuff that I had to. To face about myself and it made me think a lot about how uh at least in the west sexuality is deeply connected to identity especially um i, I can say for you know for men and other genders but especially for women and 
that's deeply frustrating in many levels because uh, everywhere you go, everything you do, there is a certain layer of sexuality attached to you, even to your, especially to your appearance. And can, um, I was talking to my best friend about that these days, like sometimes um, I'm meditating and I realize, oh my God, I'm tired to diminish myself to my appearance or to my sexuality or to even um, have really weird intrusive thoughts of sex while I'm working. And, and that, that was a real uh, long journey. And um, I'm mentioning the, the whole uh, gender stuff because um, quoting uh, Simone de Beauvoir when she says that a woman, uh, we are not born as women. We are always like incomplete. So a woman is always uh, an appendix of something. She's always a wife, she's always something else. And she's never culturally allowed to be herself. So this is really beautiful because it has been this really complete journey for me. It, it, no, not, not complete, but, you know, in, in this, this whole way. So, yeah, I want to thank for this lecture because it, it was it really came down like full circle for me. Thank you, Jana. To Paul Francais? Oui, je parle. Ton accent est magnifique. Uh, thank you. Tu belle. Wait, um, I wanted to point something out though. Um, that's really powerful because like Simone and um, Virginia Woolf, like they make these points, you know, and I think now Handmaid's Tale capitalized on that and that whole thing. But, you know, uh, Vivekananda said, all politics is rubbish. My only politics is God and truth. Because a lot of people would try to, you know, Vivekananda was a powerful voice in 19th, late 19th century America, where people were trying to get uh, Eastern philosophers idea about Western politics. And he would refuse. He says, all politics is trash. My only politics is truth and God. You know, it's beautiful. Um, but it is, it is a fact that in yogic scripture, Sankhya, non-duality, these frameworks of thought are diametrically opposed to the modern political zeitgeist of identity politics. They are diametrically opposed because the idea that we should argue for a label to define who we are is exactly what these schools of philosophy resist. And I think you're making a really good point, Jana, that today there is a lot of eminences like a sexual choice and orientation as pertaining to who you are. And so identify as that, collectivize as that, center activities around that you know whereas it's not that those things are wrong it's that you're not just that you know precisely good and good. uh it was like uh to me it was a whole struggle to realize how much i was attached to it because just like we were saying like sometimes we are attached to it and we don't want to get off of that i was talking to my friend the other day we were talking i don't know about the predations and people were criticizing them and i was like Honestly, why would I want to be something else, you know, <laughs> one of these days? And during a year of pandemic, I, I work in a hospital, so we are, like, always aware. We are always concerned about, you know, the infestation rates and everything else. So uh, sometimes you get a little bit tired. So, yeah, I, I can relate to, like, uh, I know that this is the goal, but right now I'm kind of comfortable here and I'm comfortable, you know, uh, with my desires. But yeah, uh, the idea of liberation is really beautiful and really soothing. And 
um, sort of this consolation to me because uh, sexuality is also deeply connected to our emotions. And when we talk about identities, goes to these um, sort of a micro micro power relations between usually men and women or, you know, all, all the genders. So it's really interesting to think about that and to see that even though uh, these exist, just like you said, non-duality just shows you a whole different light and a whole different path and way of being. And yeah, like you said, the struggle was real, but at the same time, these days I had this really beautiful insight while, while I was sleeping, thinking about one of my past relationships and stuff like that. And I started to talk to myself and then I just realized it was like, just like you said before, like it was an insight that took me years to realize. But when I realized that I felt that so completely in myself that I, I can't even explain. You know, I was talking to myself saying, you don't need this anymore. You can just go away from this. You don't need to attach yourself to that, to the identity, to the idea that you weren't sufficient to this person or to this role of, I don't know, girlfriend or something. Yeah, so. ah, I bow. This drunken monkey bows to the wisdom and beauty that is your spiritual path, Jana. What a powerful insight. You know, I think you said something that ought to be stressed, which is being comfortable with your desires and being willing to explore sexuality in the way that it's serving your spirituality now. Because if you go to a Hindu temple, you'll often see outside the temple, there are often depictures, depictions of gods fornicating. You know, and Sadhguru made the point, he said, you know, it's, it's, it's because we're accepting that this is a valuable dimension of life. And it ought to be explored. You know, the Buddhist is somewhat diametrically opposed. I've said diametrically a lot of times today, my bad. But the Buddhist is opposed to the yogi because of this difference. The Buddhist sees this world samsara as something we need to get out of as quickly as possible. You know, whereas the yogi thinks it's worth exploring to the fullest extent. You know, so the yogi is interested in conquering nature, becoming Ishvara like God, and then moksha. You know, um, so you're right, Jana. There's a place to explore and and to just keep in mind that there's more. That's all that we need to do here. And slowly we go. Yeah, eventually you get to that place or to that experience. But just me. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. All right, Travis. All yours, brother. Uh, all right. So. I guess my, I think my question is pretty simple. Does awareness itself have structure? Is it form? Is it part of nature to some degree? Okay, three answers for you from three different schools of philosophy. Samkhya says um, it is not part of nature. It is, and I will use the word diametrically one more time. It is diametrically opposed. <laughs> what? I'm sure all the answers will be helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One that says, yes, it is a part of nature will be useful. And one that says, yes, it don't will also probably be very interesting. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> no, one thing I can tell you, though, is that all schools of Indian philosophy 
um, accept Charvaka. Okay, there's an ancient school in India. It's called Charvaka, and it's one of our most esteemed materialist schools. So it's an anti-supernatural materialist school that sees consciousness or spirit or awareness as a byproduct of nature or materiality. It's right. kind of the view that mainstream science and biology and you know has that we it's a it's a byproduct of the brain, you know, whatever. So there is that school. Almost every other school in India either have some idea of theistic design, like the Vaishnavas see intelligence as preceding nature, or this Sankhya idea of them being separate. So Sankhya says Purusha is separate from nature, and one cannot be thought of in terms of the other. So what we consider to be structure inheres in nature. You know, there's Fibonacci sequences, atoms, all that. That structure isn't to be found in the Purusha, because it's categorically different. And this Purusha, according what to... Is, what is found there? What oh, is found in the, the Parahupsha? I'm not going to say oh, it right. Yeah, no, the Purusha is... Um, it, first of all, it cannot be described at all in terms of nature. So not much can be said about it since all linguistic structures fail. Them, you know, inherently being a part of time. So what we can say about Purusha is that it's infinite. It's beyond time. It's transcendent, meaning it's not here. Um, and it only by mistake assumes it's nat like it, 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 when we say Purusha identifies as nature, it's not like it got stuck with nature. It literally came close to nature so that it as a pure crystal reflects the colors of nature. So it's not nature and thereby it has no structure since it's infinite. So an infinite thing. But, but isn't that something else that is still within nothingness, Shiva? Isn't that still something that arises within that infinite nothingness? Okay, now I'll give you Kashmiri Shaivism since you said Shiva. So remember, yoga doesn't use the language of Shiva. Right. We must, we must be very clear as to which school espouses which point, you know? Sure. Yeah, and so in Sankhya, they say Ishvara... Or actually, no, yoga. Yoga likes Ishvara. Sankhya says Purusha. And it has no qualities. You know, Purusha doesn't really have qualities, except for maybe infinite. It doesn't really have any qualities um, that can be attributed to it. Whereas, you're right, Shiva, the concept of Kashmiri Shaivism, this nature emanates out of Shiva. So Shiva is void. It's awareness. It's pure potentiality. And it's conscious. So Kashmiri Shaivism is what we call theistic monism. Monist in the sense there's one thing and that's Shiva. It's the only thing that exists. Nature doesn't exist independently. Whereas in Sankhya it does. So in Sankhya philosophy, nature exists. It's very much real. Purusha exists. It's very much real. They're just separate and they have nothing to do with one another and they cannot be described in terms of one another. In Kashmiri Shaivism, the world is not, is, is real. Sorry, the world is real. Uh, but it emanates out of Shiva, which is a little more real. And the reason Shiva is more real is because the world is made of Shiva. We just don't see it that way. And once our quote unquote third eye opens or the eye of Shiva opens, we realize that all there is is consciousness expressing itself as energy, Shakti. Um, in that sense, Travis, there is structure. Kashmiri Shaivism says awareness has structure. It's called Jnana Shakti. So there are three, five attributes of this thing. First is chit shakti. It's conscious. 
it has the ability to be conscious of itself. Then there's Ananda Shakti. It's blissful. Its property is one of bliss. Then you have um, uh, Jnana Shakti. Sorry, the next one is Icha Shakti. It is desirous. Its desire is to make art, to emanate a world. It is Jnana Shakti, and this is all your Metatron's cubes and geometry and sacred shapes. It has structure. It inherently contains within Aware itself. self-structure, desirelessness, but the blissfulness, that's yeah. interesting. Consciousness, bliss, pure desire, pure knowledge, and the last one is... Desire. What do you mean by that? Oh, that's the crazy thing. Just to carry out its its own will, just to enact what it can enact, I see. A, A deep, pure desire to make art which is this world. Now, I didn't bring Kashmiri Shaivism into today's talk. I should have. Because Kashmiri Shaivism says... It's unrelated, my fault. No, 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 no. It's really good. It's really good. I think it's valuable for, for this discussion. Because Kashmiri Shaivism says the reason you experience sexual desire is a misattribution of a deeper source desire that you as Shiva experience to emanate this world. You know, so in that sense, your sexual desire is holy. It's the holiest thing. Um, you just have to trace it back to its source. What you want is not the orgasm. What you want is to experience the fullness of being, which for a time being you've mistaken as the orgasm. So yes and no. No if I'm a Sankhya philosopher. No if I'm a non-dualist. Yes if I'm a Kashmiri Shaivite. To your question. I like, I like that one. That one made a lot, a lot of sense. Yeah. What was the third? What was the fourth kind of Shakti? I see them three types in check. What was oh. the fourth? Yeah, the Kriya Shakti is, uh, think of it this way. To do something, you need to have a desire to do it. You need to have the knowledge enough to do it. And then you need to actually do it. So Kriya Shakti is that. It's the energy or power to actually carry out creation. All right, very cool. Yes. Was that sufficient, Travis? Yeah, no, that's all I have to say on it. Yeah, really cool. Really cool stuff. Yes, yes. Good, good. Um, The central text for Kashmiri Shaivism is a little difficult, but you already have the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. That's a good one. That's very core. Um, Shiva Svarodaya, Shiva Samhita, you know, Shiva Samhita. Shiva Samhita is more of a Hatha Yoga text. It probably originated somewhere in Kashmir, so you could probably consider it Kashmiri Shaivite. Vignana Bhairava is a really good one. Um, and I definitely point you to Swami Sarva Priyananda's talk. Ah, I spelled that wrong. Vignana, I'm so sorry. Vignana Bhairava. Bhairava. It's been translated by Lauren Roche, PhD, as the Radiant Sutra. Very great text. I love that one. You can check out Swami Sarva Priyananda's talk on Kashmiri Shaivism. That's a great talk. I loved it. And of course, you can check out Christopher Wallace's uh, work, actually, in Tantra Illuminated, where he talks about Kashmiri Shaivism. He just calls it non-dual Shaiva Tantra. That's his phraseology, but he's essentially talking about Kashmiri Shaivism. No, 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 no. Nish knows nothing. Um, but yes, I hope that helped. <laughs> um, but, so I, I guess I'll say a last thing. The, the research work I'm trying to do for physics is to understand whatever that base level structure is 
So I've been trying to piece together a lot of ideas. So what 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 you talked about here really really made a lot of connections for things. So I really thank you for that. Very very good. Yes, thank you, Travis. Thank you. Ah, uh, makes me so happy. <laughs> Yes. Um, there is somebody, Naomi, who's joining us for the first time. Are you still here, Naomi? Yes, I am. Hi. Hi, you. Naomi. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Thank you. You guys are all so insightful. Um, your questions and your discussions are amazing. And I'm really grateful to have come across this tonight. Um, about, especially, I came in when you were talking about the like Tantra. I don't know you know, how it got there. <laughs> but um, yeah, I feel like, I don't know if there was anybody else who had a question. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, no, is there no, anybody I, else with their hand up? <laughs> no, I wanted to address your question, Naomi, because it's really good and I think very helpful for the group in terms of Tantra. And your question was, um, if I might read it, it says, this is my first time. Oh, thank you. Restraining for masturbation is part of the path of enlightenment because we remove the desire from our tantric energy. Um, excellent question. And I want to clarify a few things there. There isn't such a thing as tantric energy. You know, so there is in tantra only one thing. Literally, there is only one thing. And that thing is Shiva. It's what the Tao Te Ching would call the Tao or what the non-dualist would call Brahman or maybe what Christians would call God, but Christianity is a dualistic philosophy, so not really. That's the only thing that exists. Now, Shiva has another side to him and that's Shakti, another kind of clue that man and woman are one. There's no such, there's no gendering. It's like we're, we're just all one. So Shiva is also Shakti. Shakti means power or energy. Zoom Administrator 3 entered the waiting room. Should I let Zoom Administrator 3 in? Is that is that Agent Smith from The Matrix come to shut down our meeting of a... Uh, I... <laughs> okay, I just want you to know I'm going to click admit. I don't know what's going to happen, but let's see. Maybe they want to learn. Yes, exactly, Roswell. I have to let Zoom Administrator 3 in. I will never bar the gates to anyone. So here comes Zoom Administrator 3. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, Zoom Administrator 3. It's a funny name. Anyway, so Naomi, there's no such thing as tantric energy. There is tantra, which is a, a ninth or 10th century school of Indian philosophy. Tantra is a very big school. And the reason it's named tantra is because it references a body of texts known as the tantras or the agamas. Tantra literally translates to tan, meaning to expand or stretch, and tra, meaning device. So tantra means a device for expanding. What does that mean? A device perhaps for expanding the mind, you know. Today, you will hear some very strange kind of uh, etymologies. You'll hear people say tantra refers to a loom, you know, that people used to sew or to weave. And the idea is it's a weaving together of things. You know, and of course, in the West, Tantra, as Gina Heilerman says, has this like sensuality connotation, which is not that far from it, but still not it. So that's what Tantra is. It's a school of philosophy. Tantra says only Shiva exists. Shakti is Shiva in creation. So when this world comes into being, it's Shakti and this world is pure energy. Everything that you see is Shakti. 
to the minutest particle to the biggest thing. There is only one substance. You are that substance and that substance is conscious. Oh, what a beautiful child. Nata. I hope I'm saying your name right. It's so sweet. A live-in Buddha. Anyway, um, yes. The child is sleepy, so we'll be quieter. But um, Tantra, in these Shakti, Shaktiism, she is energy. She's pure energy. You know, pure energy. So there's nothing as known as tantric energy. Because you cannot isolate any one part of Shakti and say that's Shakti, Shakti energy or tantric energy. You cannot say that. Every energy is energy. You see? So in your question, there is a little bit of a clarification needed. There's no such thing as tantric energy. All energy is tantric energy. So just clarifying that. How did that feel, Naomi? That makes so much sense. Uh, yeah, it definitely clarifies. Thank you. Yes, of course. So that was the first thing. Then with regards to masturbation, um, the tantric schools, as and it, this, okay, I must qualify. Left-hand tantric schools. Not all tantric schools, by the way. Many tantric schools are dualist. So don't get the impression that tantra is always non-dualist. The tantra I talk about is non-dualist just because that's what I was raised in. I was raised the Kashmiri Shaivite because Kashmiri Shaivism comes to southern India and its final stronghold is in Sidambaram in South India and my family is South Indian they from Sri Lanka. Um, and that's where, you know, Kashmiri Shaivism finally settled. So when I talk to you about Tantra, I talk to you about the non-dual Shaivite Tantra, but most Tantra is dualistic. You know, most Tantra um, does not sound like what I'm talking about. So that's something to qualify. Anyway, um, one thing to clarify here is Tantra sees desire, Iccha, as a fundamental property of God. It's the desire to create this world. Spinoza, in his book, Ethics, I'd point you to Spinoza because in Spinoza, he says, your desires are actually holy and pure. It's just that you're seeing them the wrong way. So you're not actually, you don't actually want the things you think you want. You know, Tantra says that. So once you become enlightened, you discover that your only desire was to experience the fullness of being in form. You didn't desire an orgasm. You didn't desire a chocolate cake. What you really desired was completeness. If you can see that, then desire is good. Then desire pushes you to meditate. You know, so Tantra loves desire. It doesn't glorify sexual desire or any other kinds of desire. Just desire in principle, not in practice. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, like whenever we are feeling that sexual desire, how can we like, I don't know what's the right word. Um, because I saw, I heard somebody say like overcome it and then somebody else like kind of laughed at it. So I was like, okay, that's not <laughs> yes. no, um, transcend it, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Good, Naomi. Good. You're, you're on it. You're totally on it. No repression, no subjugation, no suppression. None of that. We don't like that in yoga. Um, transmutation. <laughs> what? So just accept it. Not quite. Don't surrender and accept it either. Um, accept it lovingly in the sense that when it comes up, there it is. But don't just give into it. That's not yoga either. So it's not suppressing it. Neither is it giving up to it. Do you see that dichotomy we have in the West? 
It's either you re- like fight against it or you surrender to it. There's no in between. We're asking you to walk the knife's edge. You know, you've heard that term? Yeah. And I like what Palm Isadora said. She said, every time you indulge in a sensual pleasure, it's like licking honey off of the edge of a razor blade. <laughs> I love that. So what we're asking you to do is not reject it, neither fully give into it, but a bit of both. You know, um, accept that it's there, but also know that the way you're experiencing it is an error. The error is to look for completion in someone else. To correct that error, only meditation can help. And to meditate, there's millions of methods. You know, but we say do asana, meaning physical yoga, engage in the practice of asana, do creative work, always be engaged in work. You know, so they say idle mind, devil's playground, something like that. (laughs) Be engaged in service. So that's one of the best ways. Like, devote yourself to whatever it is you do. If you make shoes, be the best damn cobbler in the world. Devote yourself to reading books about cobbling shoes. Practice cobbling every day. You know, be so involved in your service. That is one method. The final method is every time you do orgasm, focus on that feeling right after the orgasm when you are sexless. Meditate on that. That's your true nature. That's amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Naomi. Thank you. Okay, um, Sean and then Jana, do you still have your hand up or is it a new thing? Oh yeah, no worries. You can raise as many times as you want. I just wanted to know. I want to hear from Sean and then Corey and then we'll circle back to Travis. And then Mikey. Mikey has... Yes. Sorry, um, I was going to say, let me find my comment because I read it. I wrote it down just so I can remember it. Um, yeah. So the first thing was you said that, um, when you, or I was asking, when do you realize that self-discipline is that, okay. So you were saying that like, don't necessarily give in. Right. But like, if, um, like feel it, if, if you were to masturbate, do it and then focus on that feeling or whatever it is that you feel from it or eat the cake or whatever. If you feel that guilt from it, you know what I mean? Then you feel guilty of doing that. But when is it when you realize that I want this, but I know I shouldn't do it. Yes. But then, and that kind of ties back to um, what she was saying before was that it's like how, how do you know, I guess, like, what, what do you really do? Yes. And I, I guess it's kind of like a, a personal battle, I guess, because it's kind of like, hmm. And, and with, with a lot of things, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I feel like I could do this, but is it, is it that battle between the higher self or the ego? You know what I mean? Is it, should I do it because I feel should I not do it because I feel guilty? Should I not do it because I know it's not going to benefit me in any way? Or should I do it because I want to know what I don't need or what I don't want to do? So I'm, I'm sure of it. You, you know, it's like, where, where is that true? I, now I know that, that true consecration of that. 
Yes. Oh, Sean, killing it. Uh, Mara and Claire's point are really good. So I want to take Sean, Mara, and Claire before I come to Kari because I think they're all related. Sean, you nailed it. What Sean said is really important and we have to take note of what he said because I will say this, anytime there is a fight, a struggle, a battle, or a resistance, it's of the ego. That energy is the ego's energy. The ego likes to resist. It likes to fight. So when that ego is there, then you know it's a thought construct and you're waging psychological war against yourself, to borrow the phrase. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the Mm -hmm. tricky thing. It's not that. It's not quite that. So I'll point to maybe an anecdotal example, if you will forgive me. Um, But the way I practiced it is, so immerse yourself first in your ideal. You know, like make sure you totally marinate your mind in talks like this, in books, in your ideal, in your meditation. Once you are established in that feeling, you will get off your meditation cushion and go out into the world. And then that desire will come. So I'm on a roof, you know, sitting up there on the roof, watching the sunset or whatever. And on another roof, gorgeous girl shows up, you know, on that roof. And she waves over to me and I wave back at her. And there's a moment, (laughs) you know, there's a moment. And I, I suddenly notice my lens shifted, you know, I first see a being, my heart swells with joy, I'm seeing another being. And then an orange tint comes into the frame. And I'm like, well, that being is particularly attractive. And she's waving, hmm. You know, maybe you know, and that that shows up. So um, you in that moment, the most important thing is awareness. In the beginning, mm-hmm. that awareness, that dimension won't be there. You know, it'll just happen like, and, and you'll only realize it as an afterthought, you know? So mm-hmm. backtrack three years ago, Nish is on a roof. He's looking at a sunset. Girl waves at him from another roof. They're at coffee, you know? And then later he, he's in bed and he's like looking at the ceiling and then he gets it, you know? But it, ha- it happens first. Now, the, the shift happened when I realized like I'm noticing in that moment in real time when my coloring is changing. That alone is enough. So once you notice the coloring changing, it puts a little space between you and that desire. Often that space, that breathing room is all you need to dissolve that desire. That's often all it takes. Awareness is the great solvent for all things. So what ended up happening, there are two things that happen. Some days when my meditation is really strong and there's that interaction, it dissolves completely in my awareness and it's kind of like, ha ha, that happened. So it's kind of like happening over there and I'm over here untouched by it. And it doesn't move me. I'm not bound to it. It doesn't change the way I act or treat others, where before it might have. Now, sometimes my meditation is not that strong, and I find myself being drawn into the gravity of that desire. So it does, desire has a gravity. So let's take the scenario again. Waves at me from a roof across, the orange tint comes into my lens. I feel the gravity of desire, and then I notice the fantasy showing up, like, hmm, what if we got coffee? What if we, that once I notice that fantasy showing up, then it might be necessary to practice what in yoga we call pratipaksha bhavanam. That's one of the key practices of yoga. You will find it in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. It's in the second book, 
called Sadhana Pada. I couldn't cite you the line now because I'd have to sing the whole song for you. And I'm not going to put you through that. Atta yoga nushasanam yoga stritta. I don't want to do that. It's like ABC, you know. <laughs> what number is T? I don't know. But anyway, so in Sadhana Pada, there is a practice called Pratipaksha Bhavanam. It's absolutely, absolutely crucial. You don't struggle, battle, or resist anything. You replace. So say a thought shows up and you know the thought has a vibration that is not conducive to spirituality. If you resist the thought, it only amplifies that vibration. So instead, you put a new thought next to it. And that thought has a different vibration. So when I have like a quote-unquote sexual thought, which happens a million times a day, you know, as a young 20-something-year-old, and you know, I have to put next to it uh, my ideal, which is a, a, an image of Vivekananda for me. That's helped me a lot. You know, I see Vivekananda standing and he's saying to me, quit the fetters of bone and sinew. Why should you be imprisoned by this massive sensations you call a body? I hear Vivekananda's voice scolding and I'm like, brah, you're right though. You know, and, and, and so that will help you. I see Ramakrishna sitting in front of Kali's altar. So do that. Put that thought there. If it's not awareness, it's that, uh, Oh, here's my diametrical, a diametrically opposite thought that will help you. It will so neutralize. Right. So basically kind of, so what I, I kind of do is saying like, I don't need that. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it it's not saying that, no, that is bad, but it's kind of like being aware that, okay, I want this. I see this. I feel this. I have this desire, but what is that going to do for me? Yeah. It does nothing. You know what I mean? And then it's like, okay, well, what do I want to do with that energy? Otherwise, do I want to do something creative? Do I want to work out? Do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? So is that kind of like a similar type of thing? Yes. Yes. Okay. yes exactly. Sean, um, Nish is lucky because Nish tutors eight-year-olds. My day job is I teach middle school and most of my classes are like the younger ones. Yeah. And um, <laughs> one thing I've learned, you know, in my time in this career is um, the worst way to teach a child is to censure them, to say, no, bad, you can't do that. Yeah. Give them rules. Like I on agree. Zoom, you must, that's the worst way to teach a child. Yeah. Um, it's always yes and with these kids. So I'll ask them a question. They'll be like, they'll answer and say, Mr. Poopy Pants Piggleton. And the only thing you can say that is, yes, Zach. Um, yeah, Mr. Piggleton Piggleton. That's cool. Um, but how about this? And then you offer them something. So you don't say no, you don't cut down, you just offer something new. So your mind is exactly that eight-year-old. You must teach it uh, the same way you teach an eight-year-old. Just see your mind like that, you know? I agree. Like, it's, it's, it's less about the how, because you can't control them, but you can give them the influence of what you are to know better, yes. basically. Yes, exactly. Now, Mara, Mara's question is really strong, which is what about the desire for spirituality? You know, isn't that still desire? It's called the golden chain. It's the final desire. And you know what, Mara? It's also a trap. You know why? The problem with the desire for spirituality is not the desire itself. It's this idea that spirituality is something outside of yourself that you need to go and get. That liberation exists outside there, and I want it. I need to reach for it. That's the error. You know, that's the error. It's the error of time, because you already are enlightened. So, desire for spirituality can be a trap, because it puts it at arm's distance, and you're never going to get it that way. 
So it's the last desire you need to get over. They call it the golden chain because it's a beautiful desire, you know, and it will help you with all your other desires, but it is still bondage. And yes, Jess, exactly. Because what is happiness? And and we'll get to that. I just want to finish the, this point with Mara is that we should work to be free of our addiction to the sense pleasures. So our desire should be freedom from them, not a desire for something else. You know, we should desire desirelessness. That might be okay, you know. And it's not so much a desire for desires. Does that does that work, Mara? I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm just, I wanted to mention that the way you phrase that, like it really like, I was like, whoa, that makes so much sense. Mm. Like I felt that. It's like Good. one of those niche answers. Thank no, you. no, no, not a niche answer. It's a well, Mara yeah. answer. Right. Yes, yes. It's a Mara Insight trademark. I'll put a little TM there next to the Mara Insight. Also, by the way, I love Mara's hairdo. It's excellent. Oh, thank Very you. Cool. Thank you. Very cool. Abby, did you want to make a point to Mara's point? Um, I just had a question about like the desirelessness, I guess. Because yeah. um, I feel like because like desire and the ego are I would assume are pretty intertwined and it's interesting um, as like striving beings, how you can, I don't know how, how sometimes like enjoying life. I feel like desire can sometimes color um, just any kind of desire can kind of color. I don't know. Yes. Joys of life or there's some type of satisfaction in like the journey of desiring and receiving something. So I'm wondering about like, having that desirelessness and being able to like, I guess it's more like a, uh, you could, you, I'll, I'll say what I think it is, but you could say what it is. It's like um, enjoying that um, and living in the moment of that, but it's hard because we're such, we're very attached to stories anyway. So you just give me your answer, but I just like hard. How do you like be um, desireless and still enjoy like the satisfaction of something? Yeah. Anyway. Oof, Abby, so strong because Jess makes the same point about like happiness, you know, how can you be desireless and still enjoy stuff? I mean, isn't a journey defined by a destination? Even if it isn't about the journey, don't you need a destination to have a journey at all? Like it's a a very deep and profound question. I love it, Abby. I'm going to let Christina weigh in because she wanted to make a point with regards to this. Before you do that, though, Christina, I see you, Corey, and I see you, Mikey. Um, and I also see you, Claire. So we're definitely going to get to the Ahimsa fly thing. I just want you to know that I'm aware. I see that. Let's have Christina first, just to make point to Abby. I just wanted to add something about the, um, is the desire for happiness also bad? Because one thing like I noticed about like um, being on like the journey or whatever is that I've mistaken happiness for a spiritual enlightenment in a way, because when I was happy, like I would feel like present and stuff. And even if I like got sad for a moment, be like, oh, but it's all temporary. But like when something happened in my life that really like actually tested me, I just went back to like, I just went back, which kind of goes to what we were saying to like, um, how it's really like, um, I think it was a Hinsa thing with the thought of it just being there. The habits weren't really cut. So like, like I'm kind of trying to like accept that, like, even in your worst state, there's just as much 
spiritual enlightenment in that as a happiness. But we've mistaken happiness for spiritual enlightenment because of the same concept of heaven and hell. And like heaven is like when you're enlightened and like you go to heaven and then like everything's happy. So we just automatically think that like, that's that like bliss, like that feels good. So then, but then there's also moments where like you're crying in your room on your floor and you feel nothing, but that's like kind of like the pyramid thing you were talking about where it's like, it's, it's the same thing, just different sides or polarities of it. So that's kind of, that's kind of, yeah, what I wanted to add about that because I'm learning that right now. Yeah. yeah I want, oh, sorry. I want to just interject on the happiness thing really quick is, um, I don't know if it'll help you, but it helped me is like to realize happiness isn't actually like a, happiness is like a feeling. It's not a state. And so you can't be striving for happiness. It's like a losing game. Um, And it's not really worthwhile because if you think about um, like a world where everyone's happy all the time, we'd start killing each other in like two days. Everyone would be so bored. Like if everything was happy and everyone was, everything was going everyone's way all the time, it wouldn't work. Um, So I guess my suggestion with that or just an addition um, is like thinking about meaning and purpose as opposed to happiness. And I think that might, I think you're learning that already. Like, I don't have to tell you, but um, yeah, there's, that's helpful for me. That's been helpful for me. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I, I learned that in the happiness part of it, but Mm -hmm. it's like when you're in the sad side, yeah. You would be reminded of that. So I kind of like, yeah, I definitely understand that. Yeah. As long as I think, as long as you've can like, I don't know, find your purpose or something that you love for the sake of doing it or some kind of intrinsic value in something, then those harder times make are like part of the joy, I think. Yes, this is good because Jess and actually Roswell, you make a good point about the desire for spirituality being desirable because its end results are less dysfunctional when compared to other desires. And so we must address this idea of what spirituality is for, you know, um, because there are two things, yoga and sadhana. Sadhana is the practice. So there's a practice involved. You do stuff. So the question is, what are you doing it for? And the answer is yoga. You know, you practice sadhana so you can achieve yoga. Yoga is an event. And what is that event? According to the Yoga Sutra, it's yoga's chitta vritti nirodha. The mind is gone. That's what yoga is. It takes the mind away. Now, what Jess, Abby, and Christina are clarifying is this notion of happiness as it exists in the mind, conceptions of happiness. You know, and as Abby pointed out, um, if you let people just do what they want, they'll get bored in a week. You know, never mind a complete like, we'll kill each other because we're going to go mad. But if you just give people like three weeks off, you know, and give them a bunch of money to just satisfy pleasures, they'll get bored in a week and they won't really. So when it comes to meaning and purpose, yeah, let's remember that all spiritual philosophies do have that end in sight. Um, happiness, you know, like fulfillment, meaning, purpose, call it what you want. But there is a point to this. That's the thing, because Jess, you asked a long time ago in this class, like, what's the point? You know, because I know I opened with a very Buddhist flavored uh 
everything is the ramen bowl will never satisfy you. <laughs> now, there's a difference between the nihilistic French philosopher smoking 10 cigarettes on left bank telling you it's there's no why shouldn't we kill ourselves tonight? You know, there's there's a difference between that and Buddhism. And the core difference is that there is a way out of suffering. There is a point to life. It's just not any of the ways that you've been sold. You know, even in the best sense, I'll go back to Simone de Beauvoir because Simone de Beauvoir gives you a few models for happiness. And up there, she says the adventurer, you know, the person who lives for the adventure, for meaning, for the joy, even that will fail you. Even that will fail you. So we say in yoga, there is a categorical difference between sandosha and ananda or sukha and ananda. Sukha means uh, good space or any good feeling. It doesn't have to be pleasure. It can even be that feeling of, I did it. I roll the rock up the damn hill, you know, or something. Any feeling that feels good, that's sukha. There's something else. And that other thing is called ananda. It means bliss. It's categorically different because ananda can be there even in dukkha. So as Christina pointed out, and as Sean talked about the true low, it's exactly that. You feel ananda even in dukkha. You're more likely to experience ananda in dukkha than in sukkha because you're too distracted by your sukkha. You forget that spirituality is there too, but in, in suffering, that's when you really kind of go inward and you discover this ananda. You know, so suffering is really good for you insofar as it shows you ananda, which is always with you. So note that the goal is ananda, not sukkha. Yes, Abby. So would you say like, I guess the best way, because for me, spirituality is from, is like finding like the way to, I don't know, be most present in my life or to be like, just know that I'm not, not necessarily not wasting my life, but that I'm here for, I don't know how to explain it. And like, um, can make like appreciate things as they're happening. So, um, but my, my question for you is like, um, do you think the best way to go about things is not just for like the story arc or trying to get to the top of the hill? Good night, Tamara. Um, good night. But, um, yeah, not just for the sake of the story or the journey, um, but for like the sake of itself. Is that like, what would you say is the best way to go about that? Yes, yes. Really excellent, Abby, because almost a lot of these philosophies, almost a lot, <laughs> a lot of these philosophies say, yeah, don't go about it in like this progressive linear path kind of mentality. You know, there's no journey to being more present. That's a paradox. You know, that, that sounds pretty weird already. Um, no, no, I get it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you really do have to ask yourself, why are we doing this? And even asking yourself, why do we want to be present? Because I misspoke. Earlier I said, Sukha is not the goal. Ananda is the goal. Okay, I misspoke. Not even that. Ananda is not the goal. Ananda is a necessary byproduct and a consequence of the true goal. And if you want to know what the goal is, um, I will give you a scriptural answer. It's from the Upanishads. The answer is this. Om is the bow. The self is the arrow. And the target? Oneness. The target is truth, capital T. Or beauty, capital B. 
Um, and everything else is a consequence of that. So your quest is the quest for the philosopher's stone, not because you actually want immortality. Mind you, it's not called the medicine stone or the immortality stone. It's not called the bliss stone. <laughs> it's called the philosopher's stone because the alchemist is looking for it, not really out of a vain desire for, you know, long life. Although that's a consequence. It's because they're a philosopher. They're interested in what is truth? Why am I here? So that's the scriptural answer, Abby. There is a target. Yeah, that's perfect. And I feel like I didn't even put it into words correctly when I even described why I like spirituality, but you put it into words. And it's like kind of an intrinsic want for those things. Truth, light, beauty, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yes, yes. Good. Bye, Travis. Take care. Good night Good to night, you. Everyone. Thank you. Be well. God bless. God bless. Um, yes, you're right, Abby. It is inevitable. If you did nothing spiritual anymore for the rest of your life, you will still get to enlightenment. It just takes like 4.82 times 10 to the power of nine years. Um, or not even years. Some say age days of Brahman is, is not even years. It's longer. But uh, everyone's going to become enlightened because they already are. Now, it's just that you're right. It's, it's an intrinsic desire. And you know what that desire is? In Kashmiri Shaivism, it's the desire of Shiva to experience unity in diversity. Say more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the one thing you should be telling me not to do, Abby. If you truly cared for Nisha's spirituality, you would tell him to shut up at once. He talks way too much. Ugh. But, um... Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good night, Ryan. Sleep beautifully, my friend. Yeah, he's following Austin's <laughs> Yama. <laughs> the Yamas is obeyed. <laughs> yes. So in Kashmiri Shaivism, it says... Um, the school of philosophy says, Shiva... Okay, you at every juncture of your life have a call to art in a way, you know, leave anybody to their own devices and eventually they'll start creating something, whether that's a, a picture book or a scrapbook or Mozart's Fifth Symphony, they're, they're going to be drawn to creating something. That's exactly what Shiva feels. Shiva is, I suppose, bored if that could even be a word used to describe that being and wants to create a world of form. Now, in order to do it, Shiva creates individuals known as jivas or like sentient beings. So a cow, you know, a Claire, a Nish, a sentient being. That is Shiva. But Shiva makes Claire. And look at Claire, the perfection that is Claire. If you hear a Claire song, you're like, of course Claire is here. The beauty of it, you know. Shiva, of course, chooses to be Claire. But... The, in, the interesting thing is Shiva chose to be Nish, but out of love, Shiva mistook himself to be only Nish. That's an error. So it's like that something happened and the error was, whoops, I forgot that I'm actually all things. So spirituality is your inherent drive that's kind of seeded into you to awaken and awaken to what? Awaken to the reality that you are not the mind of Abby, nor, nor are you the body of Abby. You are the mind and body of all things. And then you consummate the one desire, which was to experience yourself as the many. So you will finish, Abby, when you can look around the zoom screw, zoom screw, the zoom screen into every pair of eyes and know them to be none other than your own set of eyes. And then there is this intense love. And that love is this feeling of 
completion. And then you know you finish. And then what happens? Does the whole thing explode? Not really. The mind and body go on. There's a momentum to them. And they will do what they, they'll develop the diseases they're supposed to develop. That's already there. They will continue to do the works they will continue to do. You just won't be involved. You'll be sitting back watching it all, like listening to your own album. Have you ever done that? I'm guilty of it. But every time Nish makes a record, Claire knows. Every time I put something out, DistroKid will tell me your record is now on Spotify. The first thing I'll do is I'll go and find a quiet corner of the house. I'll put the best headphones on and I'll listen to my record like 30 times. And then at the end of the year, Spotify will tell me that I am my own top artist of the year. It's so embarrassing. I'll never post it on Instagram because I don't want you to know that I spent 57 hours in 2020 listening to my own music. But <laughs> there's a joy in that, you know, there's a joy. And the joy is exactly what you feel when Shiva realizes that she's watching the whole thing. Just, ah, I'm listening to the record. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I did. I know I did the same thing. Um, yeah, I wrote a song and I was like listening to it like three times. Well, not as many as you, not as many hours as you did, but yeah, I think for me, it's um, just to go back to the awareness thing really quick. Um, and then I'll let someone else whose hands raised go um, that. Yeah, I feel like sometimes I'll have these moments in where I'm like the observer or I'm behind the curtain or the observer observing myself. But then sometimes like um as we were talking about like different states before, like last week, I think I mentioned like those different states, that wasn't necessarily a state, different state, but um, like you get in those different things. And then I kind of, um, and it's not linear, but like kind of almost come back into like, like the, I don't even know if it's like a lower frequency, but it's like, you're more in your head and you're like, okay, I'm putting thoughts onto now what I saw, even though when I saw it, I was super clear in my mind and it just was happening. And I was very aware. Mm -hmm. Um, or, or, oh, like that state, is that the way it should be? Or that's that. Yeah. But so that's interesting too, is like, I don't know if that's, I think that's part of the journey. So I don't like critique that part of myself or like be like bashing myself for it, for it. But I just think it's interesting because that can be like a comforting space. And I don't know if it's like the right, I don't know. Cause it's like comforting because you're like clinging, I guess in your mind, you're like, Oh, this happened or, Oh, um, like I'm taking in this information and it's connecting me to these people. I don't know if I'm making sense, but yeah, no, I see you. You actually said something that's really powerful in that. And that was the frequency of the thought, like when the thing happens and then you put your story onto it. Yeah. That's a lower frequency. You're making a really good point, Abby. And I will link this to Claire's uh, Himsa and the Fly question. And okay. I see you, Corey, and I see you, Mikey. Let's just do the Himsa and the Fly thing, if you don't mind. Um, because Abby's point, to, to your point, Abby, about the lower frequency as a thought construct, um, the story that Claire is referencing is uh, from Paramahansa Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi, in which the Paramahansa says, a disciple is sitting with a guru, um, a f uh, mosquito, you know, India, a lot of mosquitoes. The mosquito lands on the hand of the disciple. The disciple is about to smack the mosquito, pauses and says, no, no, ahimsa. Ahimsa, of course, means non-violence. It's the yogic vow, if you will, um, of not harming, compassion for all life. So the disciple stops there. The guru says, why didn't you kill the, the mosquito? The disciple said, Ahimsa. The guru said, ah, but you already struck the death blow with your mind. You might as well carry it out with your hand. 
Now the guru is pointing that out, outward forms, external forms of the thing are not the real work. It's not that important. It's the internal form. It's what's going on in your head that's more important. Jesus makes the same point, I think in Matthew, where he says, he whosoever looketh upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery. So great mystics. Thank you, Christina. Thank you so much for sharing as you always do. Bye, guys. Have a good night. Bye, Christina. Thank you for coming. Yes. So Jesus says the same thing. He says, it doesn't matter what you do. It's not about actually doing adultery. It's about, oh, you know, it's... You can be like a vegan and like telling everyone that you care about nature and you're driving to work and inside you're just like, I hate this person. You know, you can be so dark in there. Um, so the answer, Claire, is you're right. You're so right. Even the thought itself, the thought is more important because um, to, if you permit me another anecdote, I'm really taking liberties today. What is wrong? But I, the anecdote is once I was meditating and it was the first time it had happened to me where I started to perceive thoughts um, vibrationally or as energetically, you know, and I was sitting there and I was meditating and I had my dharana or whatever and I'm focusing. And I remember I think that day I was, my dharana was the image of Shiva, you know, and it was such a, I was there, I, by there, I mean, I was not there. My mind and body were completely gone. It was pure aware. It was blissful. It was great. And I'm sitting there and there's like a mosquito, you know, a small little buzzing. And it was a, a thought about something like something so dumb. Like, don't I have to teach a class at, I have to text that person to remind them that we have a private today. I think that was the thought. You know, because she had changed her private with me and I was like, oh, I better text her to tell her that we have. So I think that thought came in. The moment that thought came in, I felt a dissonance, like somebody played a B note during a mixolydian, G mixolydian progression, you know. No, a B flat. Somebody played a B flat and not a B. Bye, Sean. Take care, take care. It's it's just like that. Because, you know, you're playing in... I, I, I hope you don't mind this reference. You're playing in G mixolydian and it's like... The note is B, you know, because you're in a C major scale. So you, you, the note is B, but you can sometimes accidentally play a B flat because you might think that you're in, you know, G or something. Okay, no, I'm getting that mixed up. But anyway, that it's felt like that. It felt like a little note that was wrong. D Dorian, I mean to say, D, like it felt like playing a B flat in D Dorian, you know, it just felt wrong. And the thought brought me down from the meditation. Just one thought. That's all it took. One mundane material thought brought me down. Quincy Jones makes this point. Quincy says, uh, whenever you think about money, God walks out of the room. That's a Quincy Jones, the musician. How beautiful. Whenever you think about money, God walks out of the room. And it's kind of like riffing off the Bible. Foolishness with God is wisdom with the world and wisdom with God is foolishness with the world. I think it really does relate to the frequency of thoughts as Abby pointed out. So yeah, Claire, you're right. But that's like, that's like upperclassmen stuff, you know. <laughs> Today we talked about algebra. Claire is talking about log uh, 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 calculus. <laughs> Classic Claire. Claire is a bodhisattva, if you didn't know. Claire, you know, I know you come here to, to sit and, and be in, in meditation with us all. And here I am talking you up all the time. It's just that I'm so impressed with you. So I don't I know why. You, you should stop coming because I'm just going to aggrandize your ego every time you come here. Oh, no, you can't. Yeah. No, that's why I do it, because I can't. Claire is beyond. <laughs>
<laughs> Claire is finished, everybody. No, I, I don't know that, but... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> did that answer it, Claire? Yeah, it did answer it, for sure. Okay, good. Corey, Mikey, Roswell. Sorry, Corey, I've had you waiting a while, brother. <laughs> That's okay. I actually for, I kind of like think, because we were on a like momentum with desire, and now I forgot <laughs> what it was exactly I wanted to ask. Um, I think it had to do with, um, it was more along what Sean was trying to say or what he was saying. Um, you mentioned earlier in the lecture about focusing on a certain part of your body after you orgasm, that type of deal. Um and I noticed, um, like, for me, with my sexual experiences and hookups, I actually stopped having sex. And I'm on, like, a hardcore celibacy thing type of thing. Um, because whenever I would have, like, hookups or have engaged in sex, I would feel horrible. You know what I'm saying? It was like a void. You know what I'm saying? It would just take me to, like, a really dark void. So I was like, I have to stop doing that because it's not adding too much. It's not adding to me. Um, so I guess the general question is, like, I, is that what I should be focusing on? You know what I'm saying? Is that a state that the state that you were talking about that I need to be focusing on? Mm. Hard to get a should out of any of these yogic philosophies since it recognizes the idiosyncrasies of each subjective practice. <laughs> good night, mm. Abby. Take care. Thank you for coming. It's always good to good see you. Yeah, so in that sense, I'll have to disappoint you yet again, Corey. <laughs> You're always the disappointment, you know. <laughs> I'm always, yeah, Corey's always like, should I do? And I'm like, I don't know, brother. I, that beats me, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it's the, 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 the practice I was pointing out was when you orgasm, the focus is on the sexlessness right after the orgasm. That's the tantric practice. Um, I'll cite it for you. I'll send. I'll send the March newsletter and put it there. Okay. Yeah. So if you no drop worries. your email, I'll put it there because I need to go and refer to the scripture again. I don't have it right now, but no. um, yeah. But the line is focus on the kanda point, which is between the navel and the genitals, and that point is, I think, where you physiologically feel that satiety or satisfaction the most. And so be there, feel that satisfaction, that kind of emptying out, if you will. Mm-hmm. Remember, the Shaivas love to sky gaze. They love to consider void and emptiness, just like the Buddhists did. So they kind of like enjoy this idea of being empty and finding fulfillment in that heavy quietude, as Claire says, you know. And um, that's the thing. So when you are hooking up, quote unquote, um, mm-hmm. focus on that feeling. Now, the fact that you've kind of weaned yourself away from, quote-unquote, hooking up, the thing is, it wasn't the activity itself. It was the place where that activity was coming from that was like that emptiness, you know? Mm-hmm. So the void that you were feeling isn't from hooking up. It was from hooking up for a certain reason. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of uh, alignment issue, you know? So that is to say... What you're curing now is not your propensity for hooking up. It's your propensity for hooking up. Uh, it's the same as the Dantian. Yes, Roxanne. It is exactly the Qigong Dantian. Lower Dantian, exactly. Um, or Hara point in martial arts. They call it the Hara point. Kanda point. Same thing. Yes. Big Chi point. Um, and so, Corey, what, what you're doing is the correct thing to do. Quote, uh, I keep saying quote unquote because it's hard to make any <laughs> categorical generalized statements, but it's correct insofar as you are 
pivoting away from an activity that you know was not conducive to your spiritual practice. So Corey, you've achieved what the Buddhist would call divine dispassion, which is you have naturally renounced out of your own experience, a practice that wasn't serving you. You didn't go away from it because some spiritual preceptor told you to. You of your own volition have given it up. Mm. I noticed oh. myself that like the things that I've been doing since I've been practicing spirituality, you know, I haven't read a lot of books, but I noticed that I do certain things. And then once when I go to those sources, they say do those things. So I was like, my body's naturally yes. doing what it wants to do. And I'm just exactly. kind of going with it. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. It's like when I've experimented with, and I'm a creative um but it's like when I've experimented with certain drugs, um, uppers and that type of stuff, it takes me to very blissful states. And I feel so motivated and so creative and like, so like just more creative than I've ever felt, you know what I'm saying? But I always like say, who's that? Um, is it Greek or Roman? That one dude who was like, who had the wings and like got to the sun and like got himself. Yeah. And I just feel like that's where I'm at right now. Like this, this equilibrium, finding an equilibrium for myself where, you know, you're not, you don't want to go too low, but you don't want to go too high. It's like that. It's really, it's like, it's like a tightrope almost. Walking the razor's edge, Corey. You got yeah, it. Like the you got it. Yeah. Full circle. But um, yeah, that, that was pretty much the kind of theme of the question for the night. Yeah. Good. Corey, you are so on your path, my brother. Like you, you know, when you practice things just fall away from you, you know, mm. your diet naturally changes. You don't have to force anything. The diet, it just falls away from you. And then exactly. the desires fall away from you. Doesn't mean you won't engage in the activities. Not quite. I mean, maybe you're a householder, like, and, and I use the traditional term in that maybe, you know, cause some in, in India, you're a sannyasin or you're a householder. Mm-hmm. Sannyasin meaning a world renouncer. You wear your orange cloth and you don't start a family. You don't belong to any castes. Or you work in the world. You start a family and that means you have certain responsibilities. And that might mean you every now and then might have to have sex, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And now. Oh, that was the other part of the question. Yes. Oh, being that I'm here, you know, being in the US, you know, we're saturated with sex. You know what I'm saying? We're just. It's just. Yeah. It, you know, media and all that stuff, which I've cut out TV and all that stuff, but we're literally like bombarded with it. Um, maybe not so much as Europe, but I mean, definitely here. Um, but it was the guilt, that guilt that, oh, well, since I'm cutting this out now, I don't feel normal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that was, definitely. that was the last part of that. Yeah. And there's certain like cultural movements, like the whole censure against incels. There's a big difference between having sex, beca- not having sex because you won't versus not having sex because you can't. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And so there's a kind of things like, am I wanting because I can't, you know, it's, there's a whole kind of psychological mix up with that. Um, and it's very mm-hmm. difficult. And I do think a person needs to have a lot of sexual confidence first before they can in this day and age be a proper brahmacharya. You know, and that's just, the sexless, like the yeah, yeah. That, okay, got yeah, it. Wanting sex, <laughs> yeah, and you know the saturation thing is right. Ramdas and you know what is it? Ramakrishna in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna says you should avoid at all cost any kind of stimulation. And remember, in the Yoga Sutra, it says your samskaras or your tendencies will manifest themselves according to environment. You know, so if you go to like a nightclub and there's like trap music playing with a certain bass frequency, it's going to turn you on and it's going to, you know, if you have, it's going to get you to do those things. Now, Ramakrishna is making the point that you should not even look 
at anything that can you know, arouse sexual desire. That's one way to like just help purify it. But you're right, Corey, given today's culture, that not, that's not a choice anymore. You can't mm-hmm. turn on TV or walk down the street without being bombarded by stimulation. Mm-hmm. So the only way to do it now is to practice intensely so that that bombardment starts to become less and less acute. In the beginning, you will feel like you'll react to it. You'll see it. It'll cause a reaction. You'll get horny or you'll be like, oh, all that stuff will come up. But then eventually, you'll be able to look at the beer poster and it won't do anything to you. You know? Mm -hmm. Uh, One practice the Buddhists recommend is the corpse meditation. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Yeah. And uh, Kaz knows all about that. Would you like to share it? Welcome, by the way. It's good to see you. Hi. Thank you. Yeah, I was actually at a Buddhist class this evening where they did it. And um, I wasn't expecting it because we were like, what were we talking about? The uh, perfection of wisdom, basically. And we did like some meditations on breath. And then we did one on, on being a corpse and trying to discover where the self is if you were a corpse. And it was surprising, but I also know the other ones where you, you look at the body as pus and blood, and that's yeah. a, uh, uh, it's a great. It really changes your mind about the body for a while, anyways. Yes, yes. There's <laughs> things that mostly is mostly used in monastery, like for Theravadan. Yes, yes, it's a Theravadan practice, and um, yeah, it is definitely 